Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides us to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. Joining us on this episode is a return guest, Ajahn Kovalo, who's joining us from Dharma Realm Buddhist University in California. Ajahn Kovalo is an Ohio-born monk who, having been introduced to meditation through the Goenka tradition, first entered the monastery in 2006. After receiving full ordination from Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro at Abayagiri Buddhist Monastery in California in 2010, Ajahn Kovalo spent the next decade training at monasteries in the Ajahn Chah tradition in America and Thailand. In 2020, after a year practicing at a Paok Sayadaw Monastery in Myanmar, Ajahn Kovalo enrolled at the Dharma Realm Buddhist University in Ukiah, California, where he is currently studying Pali and Sanskrit, among other courses. Until the end of his formal studies, Ajahn Kovalo will be participating in the growing Clear Mountain Monastery community, remotely and during the winter and summer breaks. After finishing his studies, Ajahn Kovalo will join the rest of the community in person and on a more regular basis. Ajahn Kovalo is joining us today to discuss an institution that is often misunderstood in Western countries, even by practicing Buddhists in the West, that is, the Sangha, the community of ordained bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns. There are some in the West who say that we don't even need a Sangha, but there is no denying that the Sangha was an integral feature of the Buddha Sasana from the very beginning, and indeed, To be a Buddhist is to have taken personal refuge with the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. So what do we mean by Sangha? And more importantly, what is it for? Join us in finding out more about the meaning and purpose of the Sangha with Ajahn Kovalo as we seek for the treasure within. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Arjun. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be here with you, Saul. Yeah, and talking about the Sangha, exciting topic, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's an exciting topic. I think it's an important topic. I just mm-hmm. wanted to quickly ask you, though, how, how, how has your experience been so far uh, at Dharma Realm Buddhist University? How are you finding that, uh, that, that experience? Um, it's, it's been... Uh, yeah, it's not quite what I expected. I, I I don't know what I expected. You know, going from living for you know ten, twelve years at a, at a forest monastery, having very intentionally, you know, many people will leave a university setting to come to a forest monastery, and, and that's what I did as well. Um, and then you know, just having this idea that you know I wanted my holy life, my life in robes, to be sustainable, and thinking that you know the meditation monastery that I was staying at, um, meditating eight, nine hours a day was just not sustainable. So what could I do to elongate my holy life and hopefully stay for my whole life in robes and just drawn to, to study. And so moved into the university with that idea in mind. And it's certainly very common in Buddhist countries. You've got whole Buddhist universities. You've got two huge Buddhist universities with virtually all monk monastic students. Uh, in Thailand and also in in Sri Lanka, uh, Burma, and so coming into it and 
um, I thought the lessons that I would be getting would be more focused around language. That's a big focus and interest of mine, Pali and, and Sanskrit. Um, and I'm finding that it's, you know, it being a Mahayana uni Buddhist university, Chinese Mahayana in the uh, Shunhua school, that the lessons that I'm learning are not ones that I actually was intending on uh, learning from the whole experience, but are, are quite profound, actually, really being uh, tested and um, pushed uh, with my own views. Like, how do I hold on to my Theravada views? And in the face of, I won't say Mahayana opposition, but sometimes it, it could feel like that, um, mm. you know, just in these classes where it seems like there are certain concepts which are different from what I'm used to in Theravada. And, and that's been great because it's really, um, yeah, forced me to get a hold of how, uh, what I believe, what I think is Theravada doctrine and how I'm holding on to that. And that's really healthy, I think. Mm. Well, I gotta say, I'm really glad that you're joining us and that you have that experience of having spent over 10 years in a meditation monastery. And now you've got also uh, the academic, the study background, uh, especially if we're dealing with this topic that we've got today, which is uh, trying to understand uh, the meaning and purpose of the Sangha. And I think a good place to start is to get a clearer understanding of what we mean by the word Sangha. Yeah, it's a good question. It's uh, I do believe it is in the Oxford English Dictionary by now, um, but it's probably not in the vocabulary of most non-Buddhist or non-Hindu Western people. Uh, so basically it's the third of the three jewels, um, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Uh, there are typically, it's typically framed as being of two different levels. Um, you've got the Arya Sangha. So these are the disciples of the Buddha who are uh, enlightened, um, whether that's bhikkhus or bhikkhunis, male or female monastics, or lay people, male or female. That's the, the noble Sangha. And then you've got a level of uh, the Sangha, which is just the traditional or conventional Sangha, the monastic Sangha. That's us, all of us in robes, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis. Uh, we are the traditional Sangha. So not all of us are enlightened. Um, it's probably a, a rather small proportion most likely, um, but this is a different level of Sangha. And you've also got, you know, a big question which comes up in Western circles is that when Buddhism was coming to the West, this idea of Sangha as a, the third jewel, um, the third refuge uh, was being talked about, but there wasn't yet any kind of foundation of a monastic system. So people started, you know, so what, what do we take refuge in if there are no people in robes, nobody who were, you know, professional practitioners of, of this uh, religion, of this teaching, so that the word started being used for in lay contexts. Um, so a lay Sangha, and this is very common in pretty much, I think most Western countries. Uh, I don't think it's used in that way in Thailand or in other, um, it might be to some extent in Sri Lanka, but um, yeah, that's a unique way it's used in the West. And I don't actually think it's, um, yeah, the word in, at the time, you would, there were yes. instances talking about Amiga Sangha. So a Sangha of deer or a Deva Sangha, a Sangha of Devas, you know, so talking about Nupasaka Sangha, a group of 
upasakas or lay people. I don't think it's, yeah, totally inappropriate. And if it kind of brings some unity to one's practice. And... I did want to ask you about that, though, because my, I mean, maybe I'm incorrect about this, but I thought that there was a slightly different interpretation from Theravada and Mahayana in terms of what the Sangha is. Is that correct? Uh, it's a good question. I think it maybe it, it differs depending on the different schools. So I know Nichiren Buddhism, which is a Mahayana sect uh, based out of uh, Japan, they very much have the, it's their kind of, uh, their school's belief that Sangha is just monastics. And similarly, in this uh, Master Hua Mahayana, Chinese Mahayana tradition, it's very much Sangha is just monastics and there are papers written and monks speaking very explicitly about how it's uh, just the monastic community. Um, but yeah, I, mm. I, I don't I, think there's a general distinction. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that because I was wondering about that, the origin, because I saw it, I don't see it so much in Australia, but I noticed it in discussions, particularly in the United States, that there's this idea of a lay sangha as well. Um, I didn't realize the origin of it. Um, what, how long, well, let's get a basic question out of the way. How long has the Sangha been around now? Well, the Sangha has been around since the earliest days of the Buddhas, since the Buddha's enlightenment. So roughly uh, 2,600 years ago, uh, the Buddha attained enlightenment. That was the full moon day in July. That was uh, called Visaka Puja celebrated now. Uh, and then roughly, uh, I believe roughly a month later, a month after that, the Buddha was enlightened. It could have been uh, two months, uh, but the Buddha was enlightened, stayed around the Bodhi tree at Bodhgaya, just conceiving, how could I possibly teach this to anyone else? Uh, and then he conceives that actually, at first he's a bit disheartened, thinks, this is so subtle, you know, can't teach, no one's going to get this. But then he thinks, oh, actually, there are people who have little dust in their eyes and the story of the god Sahampati coming down and inviting him to teach. There are people with little dust. And he actually looks with his Buddha eye and says, oh, there are these five former friends of mine and I can go and teach them. And he walks to Varanasi where he teaches the Dhammachaka Sutta on Asala Puja. I believe it is, it's two months after Visaka. Um, so, and that was the birth when he taught that uh, turning the wheel in motion, uh, Dhammachaka Sutta, then Anya Kondanya became a stream enterer, and all these devas rejoiced, and that was the birth of the Arya Sangha. Um, so, mm, okay. Well, let's go to the next. I think it's uh, one of our core questions is why do you think the Buddha started the Sangha in the first place? And I think you've given us a little bit of context about how after his enlightenment, there was this sense of, well, how can anybody understand this? And spending some time reflecting on how to teach. But the, one of the first things he does is starts the Sangha. So why do you think he did that? Well, I mean, there are a number of principles which the Buddha points to, um, which are demonstrating this importance of, of friendship, of community, of the Dhamma into the world. So in terms of these three refuges or these the triple jewels, uh, you've got the Buddha, that's who he, that's enlightenment. And then you've got the Dhamma, that's his teachings on enlightenment, the Buddha's teachings. And then the Sangha is that moving out from, from the heart, from the truth, 
uh, from realization of the way things are into the world. And all of us, even you know, the most reclusive monk or nun or you know, whatever kind of ascetic, uh, just living by themselves, you have to interact with the other people. And the Buddha realized this and it was just natural that if he's going to teach, he needs to teach someone. And uh, for all of us who are much, um, yeah, f much less further along the path than he was, uh, you know, we're all still kind of struggling along. Having friends uh, is very important. And so this is the, the principle, the famous uh, quote from Ananda or from the Buddha to Ananda. Ananda says, oh, you know, spiritual friendship Aliana Mitta's beautiful friendship, that's the whole of, that's uh, half of the holy life. And Buddha comes back with the punchline that, no, it's not. Don't say that, Ananda. That's, spiritual friendship is the, the whole of the holy life. So, uh, and I feel like what the Sangha does is create a, a group of people who are the symbol of the highest form of that. So when one really wants to get serious about their practice, inspired by the Dhamma, inspired by the Buddha, then it makes sense to surround oneself with people who have similar goals and can help one around one's, with one's path, so. Mm. Um, also, I just wanted to ask as well, what, what, what does the role of the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, because in some ways I feel like that defines the Sangha I mean, you, obviously, you're wearing a robe, and that's in a symbolic sense. But it's much more than that, isn't it? It's there is it's a it's a set of practices and a way of life. Uh, this is very true. Yeah. So just a bit of background: the Vinaya. These are all of the uh, Buddhist uh, given regulations for the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis, people who've voluntarily um, decided to ordain into his order, and you know we take very strict rules. Um, we can't kill. If we kill another human, no longer a monk. If we steal in specific ways, if, if we steal, commit, you know, have sex, uh, if we lie about spiritual attainment, we're no longer monks and nuns. Um, so very strict rules and we're taking this on ourselves. Um, and then a bunch of other rules. I mean, we've got 227 main ones for monks, but then just all sorts of minor rules. And the purpose of the vinya, uh, the etymology of the word ni is the root, and that means to lead. And vi is, in this instance, to lead out. So these are rules which lead outward. It's this principle of discipline equals freedom. So many people, when they first uh, come into Buddhism, perhaps through meditation, really inspired. These are teachings on the highest liberation. We love freedom. You know, freedom is great. That's what you know people want in in the West. That's what everybody wants. But um, it seems, how does it make any sense to take on all these rules? How how are holding on to rules going to enlighten someone? Um, and that's really the paradox. Which, as monks and nuns, as uh, people who are trying to live this path, this is the the paradox of our life that we have to kind of figure out how do we find freedom within all of these constraints and it's, uh, it's a creative challenge and uh, it can be quite beautiful, but that's definitely the point. And um, yeah, there's actually the Buddha gave 10 reasons why he laid down 
the monastic rules, which are quite fascinating. Um, the first was for the excellence of the Sangha, um, for the uh, support of the Sangha, for uh, the restraining of kind of some translations are impudent or basically like monks <laughs> who are kind of shameless. So for curbing, you know, shameless monks who just want to do whatever, whatever they want to do and for supporting monks who really want to get down to the practice, uh, for inspiring faith in those who don't yet have faith, for increasing the faith of people who already have faith, for decreasing uh, or for their um, restraint of asavas or mental outflows, um, unwholesome states of mind in this life. So by keeping all these rules, it's a check on all of the kind of troubles of mind and body and community that can come when we break these things and in future lives. Uh, and then finally, uh, the Buddha gave it for the comfort of the Sangha, the establishment of the true Dhamma and the long life of the Vinaya. So it wasn't just for other people, it was for oneself, it was for the community of monks, it was for the community of lay people, and uh, it's for the long life of his teachings. So it's a really neat list. Wow, yeah, that is a great list. I, I, I haven't heard that before, and it, is, it really does outline things very clearly. And thanks also for that point about the Vinaya, which, because you know, in Western society, we worship freedom, we think that's the highest thing, but the idea of freedom is just doing whatever you want, whenever you want, and this is a very different conception of freedom. This is like almost like being free from wanting, um, which is, you know, and you have to train to get to that point, don't you? So that's a very powerful point. Um, one of, well, I did want to ask, when we take refuge in the Sangha, um, and of course, both lay people and, and monks and nuns do take refuge in the Sangha, what are we taking refuge in? Uh, it's a great question. So um, you can see it in terms of the three levels of Sangha that I mentioned. And of, so those three are basically in the noble Arya Sangha, so people who are enlightened to some level. In the traditional Sangha, if the monks and nuns who are wearing robes, um, in even if you wanted to allow this uh, this lay idea of a Sangha, you know, your, your Kalyanamitta, uh, and then on an even more fundamental level is the reflection of Sangha within our own hearts. So this is a level which doesn't really get talked about much, um, but I think it's, it's very important. It's almost the most important um, in that the Buddha recommended Sangha Anusati. Anusati is recollection of the Sangha, recollection of the Sangha, not just, um, you know, imagining or visualizing those people who we believe are enlightened, Ajahn Man, or all of the disciples of the Buddha, uh, Mahamogalana, Sariputra, people alive today who we think are enlightened, um, just thinking about these people. Uh, but it can be something much, much deeper and, and more personal, um, almost this, uh, the place in the heart when you are practicing uh, mindfulness of mind, this, this place where you uh, notice that uh, the boundaries between inside and outside. So I might do a, <laughs> a brief guided meditation later, but because uh, that might not be immediately clear, 
but um, yeah, there's multiple levels of taking refuge in the Sangha, or taking refuge in that noble Sangha. If you can find someone who you believe is, uh, is noble, and again, you can't know noble Arya, someone who's enlightened to different degrees, has gotten rid of greed, anger, and delusion to different levels, then associating with them is wonderful. And the Buddha praised that association with such people all over the place, even just seeing such people is great. Mm. Um, but again, it's that's somewhat of a uh, instrumental, you know, you, you can't, you know, even if I had arhats around me all the time, and even if I wanted to be with them all the time, you know, they're going to shoo me away, you know, at, at certain points, you know, it gets annoying to have somebody like following you around. The Buddha himself did that. There was a, a case with a monk just kind of following him and just adoring his his body. But, um, yeah, so you can take refuge in a, someone who you think are enlightened, who you think are enlightened, or you can take refuge with uh, a monk or nun, and that's done uh, in different ways, in different traditions. Um, you can take refuge with the Buddha statue. Uh, monastics in the Ajahn Chah uh, tradition that um, I'm familiar with, we bow so many times throughout the day. We bow first thing in the morning. It's the Buddha, it's the Dhamma, and it's to the Sangha. And when we're alone in our beds in the morning or before we go to bed at night, bowing again three more times, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, that really is pointing to, uh, yeah, what, what, is the, what is the Sangha when we're all alone uh, just bowing to, yeah, what's, yeah, no one else is in the room. What are we mm. bowing to? And what, what is this Sangha internally? So yeah, I did. I did want to ask you that because I know we obviously it's very common in Buddhist countries, but for many Westerners, when they first come across Buddhism, they feel a bit uncomfortable with this frequent bowing down, not just to the statue, but also they see us bowing down to monks and nuns. You know, uh, what is the meaning of and the, what is the value of paying respects to the sangha for lay people? Um, as well as for monastics, you know, what is the value of doing that? Do you think? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. I mean, it, it's such a, you know, sticky point for, um, for many people. You come to a monastery, especially if you're coming to a monastery in the West, and there are, you know, maybe people from Thailand, who, want to show, the newly come Westerners like how to bow, or even like you know, putting their hands on their backs and like. You know, doing a kind of, uh, you know, assisted bow um, that can be very, um, yeah, it can rankle many people. Um, but there are so many uh, benefits from learning how to, learning how to bow and learning how to bow to these different things and exploring what that might mean internally for oneself. Um, because that's really what it's all about. I mean, it, all the monasteries I've lived at, it's totally optional you know like mm. monks were not or at least i'm not you know just staring like who's bowing and who's not uh you know taking score um because it really doesn't matter to me i don't get any extra points when somebody bows you know and um yeah and and actually from the monk's point of view we have to be careful there's a pretty extreme sutta where the buddha said that if a monk, when being bowed to, takes that as reason to make make a self and be elated with that that receiving of praise, then it would be better 
for a monk to basically wrap, I believe, wrap themselves in like an iron, a heated iron blanket. Uh, so basically like a totally dukkha-filled hellish experience than to accept praise in kind of a self-forming way. Um, so pretty strong words and monks and nuns, we do have to be careful of that. But from the, from us bowing or from lay people bowing, it really is immediate value is just uh, humility, um, learning that, or at least believing that there's something, you know, it, hopefully those first two refuges, you know, bowing to the Buddha, the Dhamma, or at least bowing to the Sangha or to the Dhamma, you know, believing, okay, there's something which I hold up higher than myself. And in starting with that, starting with the Dhamma, you can bow to the Dhamma three times if you want. Mm. Um, but maybe then working from there, okay, I respect this quality, okay, peace, I'm not as peaceful as I can be. Um, the Dhamma teaches supreme peace, okay? I'm not as happy as I can be, the Buddha te or Dhamma teaches highest happiness, letting go, all these things. I can bow down to that. I can put my head to the ground and literally make this uh, this gesture. Um, and, and doing it not just as a performative statement in a group, but when it becomes, it becomes a whole different thing when you do it when no one's watching. And how do you bow when no one's watching? Um, and what can you learn from that? I mean, is it just a silly gesture? How is it any more silly than anything else that we do, any kind of other? stretcher yoga pose that that people do it's uh on one level it's just a, a movement of the body and uh if you get into like these more elaborate forms of bowing like the chinese three steps one bow which is basically getting on your knees and doing a kind of uh, half bow on the ground or the tibetan style basically full length prostration um it becomes an exercise you know you're mm -hmm. getting some uh, movement with the body so lots of benefits and you know, work up from the Dhamma, then you can probably get some faith in the Buddha. And then, okay, maybe there are some people and that's a big leap. That's a big psychological shift. I mean, Westerners, we didn't grow up believing that, you know, other than those of us who were raised Christian, that a human could attain divinity. And Jesus was kind of an outlier because he was the son of God, but we don't have this idea of humans attaining enlightenment and mm. Okay, maybe the Buddha, but this idea that other people can do it too. And not just other people at the time of the Buddha, but that possibly, and this is the faith of, it's my own faith, and it's the faith of many others, uh, that there are still living masters who uh, have put an end to greed, anger, and delusion in their own mind. And just bowing to that, I've got images of my favorite ajans on my, on my shrine. It's not just the Buddha that I'm bowing to. Um, it's... Yeah, lots of different ajans in my shrine. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that's a, such a powerful point that you're making is that bowing is totally optional. No one is requiring it. You can go to Absolutely. a Buddhist monastery or a temple. No one requires it. The people who are bowing are choosing to do it, and they're bowing down to those when they bow to the sangha. It's to those noble qualities which you mentioned, like putting an end to greed, hatred, and delusion, totally clearing the mind and having pure wisdom. Um, that's that is such a such a rare thing in our world today um, to to venerate those qualities. Um, uh, this brings me to I think really just the big question um, of this uh, interview, which is 
uh, what is the purpose? Ultimately, what is the purpose of the Sangha? Um, and you've spoken a bit about what it represents, but also, I mean, in terms of the Arya Sangha, the noble ones, but most of the Sangha aren't Arya. Yet, and you've spoken about the importance of friendship, but is it? it's more than that as well, isn't it? It's a, it's a vehicle for training. What else can we say about it? What is the purpose of having a Sangha in the 21st century? Yeah, the purpose of having a conventional, traditional Sangha of people who are not wearing normal clothes, but are just wrapped in robes and shaven heads. Uh, great, great question. And uh, yeah, I mean, just speaking from a personal point of view or the point of view of many people who are inclined to, to this lifestyle themselves. So uh, there are many people and the numbers just uh, seem to be increasing who are disillusioned with the dreams that are put forth in the media or are even put forth uh, in deep works of literature. You know, the uh, traditional values of, um, yeah, certainly American values and consumerist values, um, belief in dreams of, um, of wealth, having wealth as one's highest refuge. Uh, this kind of uh, goal, which is not even questioned in so many uh, in in so many circles, um, you know, having that as one's foundation in life, you know, just becomes so hollow. And seeing or the ha that there exists an institution <laughs> and. Yeah, institution, the word itself, you know, has gotten a bad name because of all of the corruptions that can happen to any institution and have happened to religious institutions, including uh, the Buddhist, the Buddhist Sangha in, in different ways at different times. Um, but just having this uh, group of people and hopefully you can find a local Sangha uh, that... Uh, or at least in the same country, you might have to go to the opposite end of the country, which uh, I and many others did in, in America. But an inspiring group of people who, even if they're not enlightened, share similar goals. And yeah, going from, well, first jumping from, uh, you know, a rather just pleasure-seeking life. You know, that I mean, the word pleasure-seeking is not really even a, a compound, which is used that often just because it's the default principle for most people in their lives. Um, but then in America with enough, you know, it's fairly easy, uh, you know, I'm, I'm middle-class lifestyle, you just get enough. And then once you've got, you know, enough, enough money, enough food, and you just start eating more food and going to more movies and consuming more live streams. And um, it just doesn't satisfy in the same way. And then having uh, the idea and the actuality of a group of people who are trying something different, who give away their, who voluntarily give away their cell phones. I mean, just that is <laughs> impressive. Um, yeah. And being able then for those people who, who can, who found a monastery that they're inspired with, then the option of they themselves entering into that and then giving up the things we give up 
in order to gain the things that we're uh, we're given and that we're working towards is just uh, such a amazing uh, amazing thing in the world and extremely unique. Um, yeah, Theravada Buddhist monasteries didn't really exist in America uh, before the at least for with Western abbots who could explain um, different concepts to people, say much before the the 80s, so if not later. Yeah, that's a very, very powerful point. And I, I love that way of expressing it. Like, I think for us living in the West, there, that, that pleasure seeking as a default, when we don't even think about it, it is just like, of course, that's what you do. But then even just seeing a monk or a nun and their lifestyle, it's like it, a question arises in the mind. Well, why would you do that? And it's, it's a clear alternative. And I think that's one of the beauties is for lay people is that, well, there is that alternative. And I could perhaps go on a retreat and that's living like a monk or a nun for a short time, or maybe I'll go the whole way and, and try it out and see if I like it. Uh, but I did also just want to ask, you know, there is this um, ancient tradition, which of course continues today, which is that lay people support the monastics. In fact, the monastics are based on the vinya, are independence on the lay people for, for food and for all of their necessities. Um, what is the value of that for lay people? Um, well, for lay people who want to ordain, it's almost a necessary prerequisite. I mean, you have to live mm. at the monastery and kind of draw near to the monks if you want to ordain. Uh, for people who either don't want to ordain or have life circumstances that um, yeah, don't permit them to ordain. It's just a great chance to draw near to monastics. Oftentimes the way that alms round is carried out in the West, like Ajahn Nisibo, myself up in Seattle, Ajahn Nisibo right now, while I'm in school, you know, he's going alms round every day. Really? And wow. the, yeah, alms round uh, six days a week, mm. six days a week uh, into Pike's Place Market near the original Starbucks. Um, but basically the way it's done in the West is he goes and stands outside of a, a market um, and people know where he's gonna be and people will come. He doesn't usually doesn't have a, an idea of who all is gonna come, but people do come. And it's actually an, a chance to speak Dhamma, you know, a chance for people to actually talk to someone who's trying to uh, immerse themselves in the Buddhist teachings um, in Thailand or a Buddhist country, oftentimes Omjian is a totally silent uh, affair, not even in many monasteries. Um, monks don't even chant a blessing. So they'll basically walk by with their alms bowls, people put food in their bowls, and they don't, they don't even stop. They just keep walking. And that's the correct thing in that, um, in that cultural circle. Um, but in the West, people just don't know enough about monks for you know, to have a monk just receive food and then for the monk to continue on with the, out saying a word. Um, it could happen, but uh, yeah, conditions have to be quite specific for that. But it's a chance to, in the West, to, to speak with someone who's uh, studied the Dhamma, has been living the Dhamma, practicing meditation for a long time, keeping precepts for a long time, someone who's been meditating on death, uh, someone who has a different perspective from the world. They're not glued into all of the media that most people are 
um, looking at every day, uh, their attachments with um, all sorts of attachments are, are much less, but it's a very different world inside of the, the Sangha and to be able to interact with someone who's in a very different subculture than you are, a very different uh, environment. You can learn a lot from such a person. So you can talk and even just the act of giving food, even if you don't say a word to the monk, um, it's just a beautiful opportunity, which is is sad that it, it's not more widely practiced and available in the West. I was visiting my grandfather a number of years ago before he passed away and it was a really beautiful time i was staying at my grandmother and grandfather's for two months um just before he died and my grandma loved it you know she would make me food put it you know mm. offer it to me every day and she just loved it and you see this in buddhist countries when someone has retired especially if their kids have moved to bangkok their kids have moved away uh, not to mention America, where the whole society is so separated. You know, you've got my grandma was in Tennessee and the rest of my family was in California or Washington or who, you know, all over the place. And, you know, just having this contact where, um, say, the, the grandma in Thailand, there's at times 300,000 monks in Thailand and many of them going alms around every day. The grandma, if her kids don't live around, uh, she maybe has physical conditions, he or she uh, has physical conditions that prevent them from continuing to work in the fields or work in their jobs the same way they used to. But still, they can put a, cook a little bit of sticky rice at you know early in the morning and then come outside. And the first act you do during the day is to put some food into somebody else's bowl. And the fascinating thing is that it makes you rich or it, mm. it makes you not poor automatically if you're giving something to someone even if you're living in like some of the uh the places the, sh the shacks the huts the sheds that people lived in um in some of the places that i've lived in thailand that these more forest monasteries are at i mean people in the west have no idea what it's what material poverty can can look like but but then to have someone who lives in a shed with uh just a corrugated metal roof to come out and put food in your bowl. It's totally flipped. How are they poor? If they've got enough to give, then how are they the ones who are poor? And it just can totally shift one's own perception of one of oneself. And it's, it's very humbling for the monks. It's a good lesson. Like, am I doing what I need to do? Am I practicing the teachings to be worth this ball of sticky rice, to be worth this I mean, you come to the West, there are affluent monasteries, and it's just total uh, you know, abundance of food. So are we worth this? And so lots of different um, purposes and benefits from offering alms and associating with the Sangha. And I think, I think you've really hit on a really valuable point is the joy that arises mm. from giving, which is just so powerful. And you see it again and again. And I... I think that Westerners sometimes miss it. And I did just want to share one story that came to mind very briefly, which was the Dalai Lama had a Westerner who was doing translations for him. And uh, she was you know, obviously part of his entourage. And at one point in Dharamsala in India, there was this Tibetan woman and she bowed down and very with a great deal of veneration. And she gave uh, the Dalai Lama a skirt. 
and she's clearly very, very poor. And she gave the Dalai Lama a skirt, like mm. a dress. And mm. and this woman was like, what? How can you possibly, you know, it's like it was insulting to her way of thinking. This woman is so poor. How can you accept uh, this skirt? It's just probably like one or two or three that she has. And she's get, you're accepting it from her. You should say no. And she's, she said this to the Dalai Lama afterwards. And he says, yes, you're right. She was very poor, but she needed to give. And that's the point. And I think we often miss that, is that happiness and joy which arises from giving, even if you have just a little, it's it's actually, I think what you said before, just to be able to give that little bit, all of a sudden you're rich in a spiritual sense. That That is, that's a really beautiful story. And uh, yeah, thank you for highlighting how giving can lead to joy. But even mm. just this recollection of the Sangha can lead mm. to joy. Whether it's the noble sangha, I know many people, myself included, who at times like thinking about the kindness of a teacher we've met or even a teacher we haven't met. You know, many people will think of their ajahn who might not even still be alive, but just mm. like tears of joy and, and thanks come to mind. Um, and similarly, yeah, the Buddha said that recollection of sangha can lead to pamoja, which is gladness, which then leads to piti or rapture which then leads to bodily calm, which then leads to sukha or happiness. And from that happiness, there comes, the mind can become concentrated and see things the way they are. So this is a very explicit mention in the, the texts of how thinking of the Sangha, bringing the Sangha into one's heart, experiencing this can lead to better and better joy and then joy plus plus uh, in mm. the Samadhi. So. I think this would be an excellent place in which to conclude our interview. You did mention earlier about that idea of Sangha, Nusati, recollection of the Sangha. Could you give us some guidance as to how we might practice uh, Sangha, Nusati? Mm. Yeah, maybe I'll just do a, a quick, maybe three or five minute uh, guided meditation, just exploring this principle of Sangha being the Dhamma when it moves out into the world. So sitting or standing in a stable posture. Now bring your attention to your right hand and wiggle your right finger. So feel your hand and your finger from the inside and wiggle your right finger and then look down and yeah, your finger actually is wiggling. There's a, an accurate relationship by, between what it feels like in your mind and what your body is actually doing. Bring your attention to your left hand, feel it from the inside. Now bring your attention to your heart and not just think about your heart, but actually let the mind drop into this cavity in the upper chest. And feel the warmth there. And then with the eyes closed, just see if you can feel a boundary. Can you feel the front of your chest? Where do you stop and where does the world begin? In the back, is there any 
clear demarcation? Is there any enclosement? Any clear marker of what is inside and what is outside? And experiencing this, seeing that from a first-person perspective, it feels like we're living in a cloud. The mind is not restricted seemingly within the skin. And feeling this just allow the mind to play and stay there at the this border, this bordering, this non-border of internal and external. And this is one way to conceive of Sangha. It's that which is in contact with the external world. It's, uh, it's that which mingles with outside. And you can just start from here, start from the heart and just play with the boundaries or the boundarylessness of, of the body and the heart and bring a teacher, a friend, Kalyanamitta, Bhikkhu, Bhikshuni, Bhikkhuni, bring them to mind and just let that concept, that idea, let it just mingle with your, your heart sense, your open hearted awareness. And let the space be filled with gratitude. And then take that into your day. And that's a way of trying to live Sangana Sati, basically coming from the heart, coming into the world with gratitude and having this relationship, knowing that there is this relationship in your heart between yourself and your highest goal and its its lived manifestation. So mm. Thank you very kindly, Ajahn, for coming with us uh, on to this interview and uh, outlining the meaning and purpose of the Sangha. Thank you very kindly. Yeah, thank you, Sal. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this inspiring episode of Treasure Mountain, in which we took a deeper understanding of the meaning and purpose of the Sangha with Ajahn Kovalo. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate if you could share this episode with your friends or other people who you think could benefit from its sage advice. And don't forget to click the follow button on your podcast app so that you get the latest episodes turning up in your stream. Treasure Mountain Podcast is part of the Everyday Dhamma Network. You can find out more about the Treasure Mountain Podcast by going to the link in the show notes for this episode. You can also find out on the Treasure Mountain website 
information about previous episodes and guests, as well as transcriptions of our interviews. And if you go back to the everydaydharma.net homepage, you can discover more about the three other podcasts on the network and links to subscribe to any and all of them too. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Treasure Mound Podcast as we seek for the treasure within.